anyone know if they're humbled? How does anyone know if they're humbled? It's kind of a hard question to answer. I mean, in some ways, it's easier to describe what humility isn't than it is to talk about what humility is. So, for example, if, if you go, I'm super humble. That whole humility thing, I got that down. Praise be God. You know, I would say you're probably not as on top of that as you think you are. You know, but the other way we can sometimes misunderstand or, or misportray humility is, is through kind of giving a false humility where we kind of emphasize how prideful we are. And, and so the way that might look is uh, there's, a, there's a certain type of, let's say, boasting and, and kind of talking about one's sins and failures. And the aim there isn't really to be humble, but rather what you're doing is you're trying to kind of uh, gain favor with men. You ever seen that? This, this, this one in particular kind of gains some traction sometimes in the church. And then lastly, I want to say, uh, again, what humility isn't. And humility is not passivity. It's not being co-seated. Um, and so, men of all ages, look at me on this one. You need to know that humility is not to be passive. It's not to be passive. It's, it's, it's not a call to be weak and to be timid. You know, humility oftentimes can look fierce. It can look unflinching and immovable. And it can be mistaken as such. And so humility is a very difficult thing to understand, but we need to understand at, at its base level, what we, if we want to talk of it this way, humility is, is, a, is a denying of oneself and a standing in, let's say, unwavering faith and conviction and resolve. It, it's about adopting a posture of heart where we serve our God, our family, our church, and our community, and not ourselves. And so while humility is a very challenging thing to, to let's say, define, um, I, I do want to say I think what we're going to do this morning is, is try to maybe paint a picture by looking at Jesus so that we might see what humility looks like through him. And so as we begin, uh, what I want to say is that we're going to look at a text, and, and my hope is that through this process we might see Christ we might get a better picture for who Jesus is, and then we might be captivated by his love and his mercy, his grace, and his humility. And that through that, we would, we would be drawn to him, and by the power of God's grace and the spirit, we ourselves would then walk in humility. You guys ready? All right, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging subject to talk about, because every single one of us has pride. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would enable us to not just hear your word and to catch a vision or a picture of what humility looks like in your son, but, Lord, through your spirit, you would help us to be a people who walk humbly with you. And, Lord, we just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. The full text is actually 1 through 11. But for this morning, we're going to be focusing in, starting in verse 3, and kind of going through verse 11. All right, so look with me at Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, he begins with a contrast, right? A contrast between humility 
and, 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 and pride. What, what you, when I say contrast, what we're seeing is there's the motivations for, let's say, prideful action, and there's motivations for actions that are rooted in humility. And so we, we start off with a contrast. So the first thing he describes when talking about prideful motivations is he says self, selfish ambition, selfish ambition. And this selfish ambition conveys this idea of wanting to seem or to appear or to look bigger than you actually are. Wanting to seem, appear, or look bigger than you actually are. And the motivation in this is to be known, to be esteemed, to be uh, admired, popular, famous, to be an influencer. Right? Who here likes to count the clicks and the likes on social media? Right? So we live in a culture where we've almost like enthroned selfish ambition. People building platforms and a name for themselves. And hear me, I'm not saying all of that is bad. But what I am saying is that when our driving motivation is selfish ambition to make uh, a name for ourselves, because it's your name that matters, it's your recognition, it's your renown, then something in our hearts is off kilter. So there's selfish ambition. The other one he, he talks about there is conceit. Um, and this word is an interesting word. The actual, in, in the Greek, it's kenodoxia. Kenodoxia. And a more literal translation, it means empty glory. Empty glory. So you ever heard the word vainglory? It's an older English word, but that's what that word is basically articulating, the same thing, an empty glory. And what's interesting is it conveys the notion of being boastful about oneself in, in such a way, though, that, uh, that you, you lack substance or weight. There's like an emptiness, a hollowness to your boasting. So I think a good example of that is, is a balloon, right? So when we're boastful, and conceited, and we're driven by selfish ambition, this is a good analogy of what that looks like. If I pass out, just come up and pour water on my face. (laughs) Bear with me. Pride will wear you out, won't it? the broken balloon. I'm a professional. that's good. So when we're driven by selfish ambition and conceit, not only do we look silly, like I just did, we're puffing our chest out, pretending to be something that we're not, and ultimately, we're kind of empty and hollow, so to speak. Now, here's the thing. What's funny, and where this balloon offers us a really interesting analogy as well, is that it's a great example of how pride is often revealed in our lives. Because the slightest opposition, the slightest hardship, trials, somebody offends you, somebody doesn't treat you in the way that you think you deserve, the moment we get jostled, the, life, the, the smallest little prick, 
birth. And our pride and our emptiness is on display for all to see. So humility is described as counting others as more significant than yourself, as being concerned about their interests. Notice the differing orientation. Selfish ambition and conceit centers on the self, whereas humility, actions that are grounded in humility, are oriented outside of the self, on others, on God. Noticing that, notice as well the different scope of concern. Motivations and actions that are rooted in pride, selfish ambition, conceit, are only concerned mostly about one's own interests. But actions and motivations that are rooted in humility are concerned about the interests of others. So now as we transition here, what I want to say is that if, if, if Paul kind of left it here, we, we would look at this and we go, okay, so don't be selfish or conceited, but count others more significant than me and look out, you know, not just for my own interests, but there, we might assume like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Not perfectly, but with enough time and effort, like I could be someone who's humble. And so I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard to do these things. But Paul's going to turn a corner here and he's going to push way deeper than we might expect. And he's going to give us a picture of humility and he's going to come to a conclusion by drawing our eyes so that we might gaze at Christ and the conclusion he's going to draw, the, the image, the picture he's going to portray for us with respect to humility is one that many find hard, if not impossible, to embrace. So look with me. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, and the word there is doulos or slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this section, the Apostle Paul, in kind of giving this description of Jesus, subverts some pretty core fundamental Roman values and assumptions about life. Some pretty core fundamental values and assumptions that the Roman citizenry and the Greeks held about how life was. To unpack this, there's a few things we're going to look at. We're going to draw a few words out, kind of highlight what they mean, and then we're also going to give some historical situating that will help us kind of see how Paul's doing this. And the reason I want to take some time to do this is because one of the things that we, we can oftentimes forget is that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. It was written for us, but not to us. And when I say that, what I mean is that when Paul wrote this letter to the, to the Philippians, he was writing to an actual church in Philippi. It was written to them. But in writing it, it was also for us and the rest of the church. But these documents that we have in the New Testament, they're very old. And there's a lot of historical and social and cultural distance between us and them. So very often there are things that the people who were written to grasped intuitively that we miss. Because it wasn't to us, but it is for us. Does this make sense? 
I want to, so track with me here. I know sometimes it's like, oh, we're going to look at some words, and, but trust me, this will really help kind of open, open up the scriptures, at least this one in a way that I think is, is really helpful for us to, to wrestle with what Paul was actually saying. So kind of going back to the text, first thing I want to look at is, is in verse 6, it says that though he was the form of God, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. When he says form of God, he's not saying he was kind of like God or looked like God or whatever else like that. He's actually saying, and he's pointing to the eternal state, the eternal state that Jesus had as the uncreated, begotten Son of God. And there's some rich theology here with respect to Jesus as God, and it points to understanding, uh, for, rather points to the, the understanding that the church has through the scriptures that God exists as one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's some rich theology that he's conveying here, but the main point that he's making here is an assertion of, if you want to say it this way, status or, or stature with respect to Jesus. Jesus is God. Fully God. All glory and honor and renown belong to him. All power and majesty. The creation itself is his. There's a text in Colossians that says all things were made by him, through him, and for him. So the form is not like, but rather he is God. That is his essence. That is his nature. That is who he is. Right? So then we move forward. Verse 6 and 7. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But emptied himself. You see, Jesus didn't consider his status as God his status as the Son of God, as something to be grasped. And this word grasped conveys the meaning, which I think the NIV translates really accurately, as something to be used to his own advantage. He did not consider his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And this word here means to give up privileges that are associated with one's status. So he's God. Think all that is rightfully his in terms of status and position. And he didn't grasp onto those things for his own advantage, but rather emptied himself. The NIV renders this, and I think this is a really uh, poignant way of saying it. He made himself nothing. So the one who was something Truly something made himself nothing. Next, taking on the form of a slave, or the word there is doulos, says he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. Now, most English translations will render this word servant, and I think we do a, 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 a disservice and an injustice to what Paul is communicating here. The word doulos meant slave. It can be translated depending on context, but broadly speaking, the word doulos meant Slave. It meant slave. And in taking on the form, it's the same word. So he's the form of God. The word there is morphe, and he's the form of a slave. Same word, morphe. And what's important to understand about this is that his glory as the son of God, right, is now veiled, if you want to say it this way. His divinity is now veiled in a body as the incarnate son of God on earth among us. But what Paul is getting, trying to help us understand here, and we need to see this as well, his form, this form that Jesus took as a slave on, who died on a cross, is not something that obscures 
the nature and character of God. It's not something that obscures it, but rather it's something that reveals something profound and true and essential to the character, nature, and essence of who God is. That Jesus came in the form of a slave reveals something counterintuitive about God. Counterintuitive about God that the Romans and most of us today overlook and misunderstand. And then lastly, this Jesus, who emptied himself to become a slave and die on a cross, is the one who all will bow before and confess as Lord. Every knee and every tongue will bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. Not all will know him as Savior, but all will know him as Lord. So, quick rewind, so, so we don't kind of lose, lose the big picture here, because I said, hey, there's some things happening here where, where Paul is completely undermining core Roman values and beliefs about how life works, and the question for us is how. How does he do this? So it centers on his assertion that God was made known as a slave who died on a cross. If you've studied um, any history about Roman society, one of the things that begins to pop out is that the view of Roman society was that slaves were non-persons. Slaves were nothing. They were nobodies. They had no value beyond what you assigned to them. And they could be used by free persons or Roman citizens in any way that they wished. Here's a few quotes. First one is from Plato. Who here, show of hands, who here has heard of Plato? Right? The, the, in terms of shaping Greco-Roman culture, you don't get much more influential than Plato. One ought not to punish, or rather, one ought to punish slaves according to strict justice instead of making them conceited by giving them the odd word of advice as one would a fellow free man. Every word spoken to a house slave ought to be a direct command. So don't treat them as equals because they're not. The only interactions that you should have with a slave is one of command because they exist to serve you. That is their purpose, that is their value, and that's all they're good for. Another one, uh, this is a quote from Keith Hopkins in, the, in a book called Conquerors and Slaves, and he's referencing um, a Roman senator, Varro, and he says, in Roman law, Law. In Roman law, slaves were treated more as things than as persons, as a person. According to the Roman senator Varro, agricultural slaves, listen to this, were articulate tools as distinct from semi-articulate tools such as oxen or dumb tools such as carts. Let that sink in. The only thing that distinguishes a slave from an ox and from a cart is that the slave can talk. It's an articulate tool. It's a talking tool. An account by Xenophon, there's no, there's no uh, slide for this because it was a long account, it's one that I remember reading. He, he talks about slaves, and I kid you not, he talks, there's this long thing where he's, he's offering advice with respect to slaves, and he talks about them like they're cattle. There's no consideration for their personhood, for the humanity, for their value beyond anything else other than making you money. I mean, he gives a detailed account of like how many slaves you should, you'll, you'll lose in the mine, how many you need to be, have on, on hand to replace them with. It's atrocious. Here's a more positive example from Seneca. This is a more popular name. Anyone here heard of Seneca? He was a, a stoic philosopher. 
So he said, he's, he's actually commending something that we would, we would recognize, hey, that's, a, that's good advice. But here's what, you, here's what we need to understand. The reason he's offering this advice, and the reason he even says it here, we're, what we're going to see, is because it runs counter to the dominant assumptions of his day. He says, associate with your slave on kindly, even affable terms. Let him talk with you, plan with you, live with you. I know that at this point, all the exquisites will cry out against me in a body. They will say there is nothing more debasing and more disgraceful than this. Catch that. The the normative belief and assumption in Roman society was that to associate with a slave and treat them like an equal, like a human being, was debasing and disgraceful. And then, uh, last quote by uh, Musonius Rufus. And can we just pause to admire the excellency of that name? I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a child, and it's a boy, that here's, here's the first middle name to just go for, Musonius Rufus. He's going to be a jazz legend. I have no doubt about it, right? But listen to what Musonius here says. It is accepted that every master is entitled to use his slave is quoted from uh, the book Dominion by Tom Paine. So there's a picture that begins to emerge. And these are just a handful of quotes and references that I could, that I could provide that give you, and rather would give us a picture of how slaves were viewed in Roman society. And, and, and it kind of gives us, uh, in that we get a window into what's happening with Paul. So kind of to land the plane, in this historical context with these Roman beliefs about slaves, For Paul to assert that God came as a slave and died by Roman execution on a cross was absolutely insane. That's not who God is. God is powerful and victorious. He crushes enemies. He crushes enemies. That's who God is. He doesn't love them. He doesn't serve them. He doesn't die for them. That a Roman would be told to follow that example was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. That's not how the world works. That's foolishness. Foolishness. You see, when Paul stated that the gospel was a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, He didn't just mean that Greeks had some kind of philosophical objection to the gospel. They didn't just disagree with it. They found the gospel, the message of Christ, the idea that God would come as a slave and die on a cross. They found it absolutely debased and disgusting and disgraceful. Because that's not who God is. That's not how the world works. Here's an example. This is an early inscription dating... Um, somewhere between 100 and 300 A.D. And this is found um, on a wall. So the one there on the right is kind of a, uh, a scan of it, if you will. But the one that looks like in stone is the original. It's, it's carved into a, uh, a wall. And uh, the words there, the inscription, reads, uh, <clears throat> Alexa Minos worships his God. Alexa Minos worships his God. So notice the portrayal. This was the general Roman understanding 
and view of the gospel and the Christian faith. They viewed Christians as idiots, worshiping an even bigger idiot, who died like a worthless piece of trash. This was how they viewed Christians. This is how they viewed Christ. This is how they viewed the gospel. The idea that bowing the knee and confessing that this weak, nothing, worthless slave was to be their Lord was reprehensible, vile, disgusting, and debased. Be like him? Be like him? The idea was laughable, it was absurd, and only a raving lunatic would believe such things. It was utter and complete foolishness. To the Greek, the gospel was foolish. No way any sensible and self-respecting Roman would follow the example of a slave. Slave, cook my food, take care of my house, I will do whatever I want, but I don't bow the knee to them and I will not ever worship them. You see, the Romans, Romans like us, preferred a theology of glory to a theology of the cross. They preferred a theology of glory to the theology of the cross. Give us a God who grants us victory and honor and prestige and power and privilege. Not one who bids me to live as a slave. Give me a God who raises me up in victory over my enemies. Not one who calls me to love them and to serve them and to give my life for them. We want a God who helps us achieve our goals. We want a God who helps us achieve our aspirations. We want a God who works with us more like a fetch one. Now, we don't say it as bluntly as that, but it does, I think, leak through in our prayers, in the content of our prayers. You know, I've never lacked for motivation in praying and pleading uh, with God and pestering God for the things that I'm interested in. Am I the only one? Why is that? Well, it's because there's pride in all our hearts. There's self-centeredness and conceitedness in all of our hearts. And that root of pride is what gives birth to selfish ambition and conceit. And it remains in every single one of us. I mean, how else do we get ridiculous teachings like these roots in the church? So, for example, Philippians um, 4.13. Same book as this one. Right? Here's what Philippians 4.13 says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Put on t-shirts, coffee mugs, right? But you do realize that, <laughs> that that verse doesn't mean that you can vent a bus. Or, or that your business venture is going to be the next um, Tesla in Jesus' name. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is not this pronouncement that whatever we lay claim to, and whatever we, as long as we do it in Jesus' name, we're going to be able to do it. We're going to be victorious and successful. When Paul wrote the letter of Philippians, he was in jail. He was imprisoned, facing execution. And when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's talking about, he's like, in the midst of my suffering and the hardship I face now, where I might lose my head, I am content in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not a boastful proclamation that I'm going to name it and claim it for Jesus and everything in my life is going to work out 
in, in some fantastic, awesome way because God has a plan for my life. You know, it's, no. He's talking about contentment and hardship and suffering. Brothers and sisters, listen, we are called to far more than vain success, the esteem of men, and a comfortable retirement. We are called to far more than those things. Have the same mind as Christ, which is yours in him. That's Paul's proclamation. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ. To forsake selfish ambition. And, 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 to, and like Christ, direct our lives in humble service to God. To live your life aimed at glorifying God, at enjoying him, and making him known in our broken world. You see, Christ bids you to come and die. To take up your cross and to walk with him, to know him, and to join him. So that's a high call, Shepherd. Like, what do I get? See, we're still like the Romans. We want that theology of glory. What's in this for me? Because that sounds like a lot of difficulty and hardship. And, I, you know, and, and I've got some things that I want in this life. And you're telling me that if I follow Jesus, I might have to give up those things? Like, that's, those are important to me. I have, I, have, I have ambitions, Lord. I have plans. And you're telling me that Jesus might tell me to forego those things and, and, and to follow him? What do I get out of this? Do you understand that? You get him. The king of glory who left all that was his and came down here as a slave so that he would be seen as a nobody and a nothing so that nobodies and nothings like me and you would know that God sees us, that he's with us, that he is Emmanuel, and that he sees our hardships and he sees our sufferings and he sees our struggles with sin. And he's not standing in judgment, but enters into the suffering with us. The king of glory, who became a slave. We get him, the son of God, who was cast out and treated like a criminal. Do you know that it was, that it was against the law? It was against Roman law that any Roman citizen could die by crucifixion. It was such a horrendous way of death that Roman citizens were afforded the privilege of not having to die that way. The word excruciating was a word coined to describe the kind of suffering. It literally means from the cross. And it was a punishment fit for the worst kind of criminal. And so the Son of God comes down and he's treated and cast out like a criminal. So that we, the guilty, so that we, the guilty, might be brought in and declared and treated as sons and daughters. We get him, the Lord of glory, who gave up all that was his. All that was his. All majesty, honor, dominion, rights, rule, wealth, prosperity, renown. All that was his. He gave it up, laying down his life for you for me, and for his church. Friend, listen to me. If you think that Jesus is merely a means to some notion of good life, whatever that might mean to you, 
and you have missed the gospel. The good news is not that we get good things. The good news is that the creator of all good things, who himself is good, has given us himself. And that we get him. So in closing, here's what I want you to see. Because this is what Paul was pushing for when he was teaching the church in Philippi. And this is, this is the message for us. All the things, all of the things that we think are so important that we spend our lives seeking and striving for and, and tooth and nail fighting for. Power, wealth, comfort, recognition, esteem, privilege, a name, honor, dignity, whatever it is. All of those things and more belong to Jesus by right because of who he is. And all of those things Jesus gave up for you. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming one. Do you see him? Do you see him? thundering. He's a God of love and mercy. He's not a God of conceit and selfish ambition. He's a God who serves and blesses. Do you see him? And so when we talk about being God's family and the values that are important for us as, as the family of God, humility is the central one for us. But if you truly see Christ and you understand the kind of humility that, that Paul is instructing us to walk with, you also feel the tension of this. Because we're far more like the Romans than we want to admit. So what's the call of Christ? Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Before losing your life, you take my name. Do you see him? body of Christ turn from our vain ambitions the esteem of men and the empty hopes of wealth and power and all the trinkets and treasures of this world because at the end of the day they amount to nothing the kingdom of ashes and may we with one turn our hearts towards Jesus Christ as savior and lord of our lives may we know him and may we share in his joys and sufferings so that in, in walking in the joys and sufferings with Christ, you will also grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And may we be united with him in both life and death for the sake of his great kingdom. Please hear me on this. I'm not, I'm not calling you to buck up and try harder. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. You don't have the power. You don't have the strength. We're not humble. Turn in faith to Jesus Christ. We confess our sin and our need, and we draw near to Him, and we walk in the Spirit. And by God's grace, we are conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And there's a cost. God may want things for you in this life 
that you don't necessarily want. His plan may not be your plan. You may have to let go of things. You may have to give up things. You might have to face slander and, and mockery and financial loss for fidelity to Christ. Remember when I said that humility is not passivity? But it's a strong, firm resolve. There's a certain fierceness to it. You can't beat our chest. But we're not called to beat our chest. To boast. We're not called to be like the world. We're called to humble ourselves, to draw near to Christ, and by the power of God's Spirit, walk with Christ, the crucified King of kings, who died and rose again on our behalf, so that the world might see that they're wrong when we say that's not how the world is. Because the kingdom of God is meant to show a different way. The way the world is is the way it should not be. And may we, may we be a people of humility. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. And Lord, I pray as well that we would not take something like this and try to go off on our own and make it happen in our own. Lord, we confess our pride, we confess our conceitedness, our selfishness, and Lord, we ask that you're, you would be at work in us, drawing us to repentance and faith and trust in you. Lord, you give us an image of coming as a slave and dying on a cross for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would see your love, your mercy, humility, we would see all that you gave up for us, and that we would draw near to you with gratitude and love, and Lord, that we would walk with you, that we would know you, we would be known by you, and it's in your great name we pray.